My neighborhood is really diverse. There's a lot of Hispanic, Latino, and African Americans over here. It's really loud. A lot of people hang out outside. They play dominoes. Music is always playing, and then all of a sudden, it's just silent, and nobody's outside, and everybody's home. I never knew how much I appreciated that or like enjoy that people just being around, and it just completely shifted as COVID came in. Justine Sakodia is 17 years old. She lives in the West Bronx, which, like many communities of color, has been hit especially hard by the pandemic. And now, in another cruel reminder of health disparities, it lags behind many wealthier, whiter neighborhoods in terms of vaccinations. Recently, Justine and some classmates set out to explore why. They're focusing on one factor in particular, vaccine hesitancy. Because while enthusiasm for the vaccines is up across racial groups, Surveys show Black and Latino adults are still among the most hesitant to take them. Working with mentors from Mount Sinai, the students put together an online survey asking neighbors how they feel about the vaccines. What did you expect to find when you started out? So I expected a lot of people to have a concern that the COVID-19 vaccine was developed way too quickly. I also expected some misconceptions coming from social media. I know there was a huge one about the COVID-19 vaccine having a microchip. And I was just like, social media is pretty influential. So I'm guessing that um, a lot of the people would believe that, especially because I'm a teenager and I'm in high school. And that's where most of my network is, like high school students. So I was just like, hmm, we have pretty impressionable minds. So I feel like people would think that as well. <laughs> yeah. What goes through your mind when you hear something like that? I'm surprised. Some of them are really, like, I related to them, but some of them were very bizarre. I feel like that's a word for it, because I wonder why they think that the government would want to track us or put microchips. It just showed me that a lot of people have mistrust in our government. I understood that in some aspects, but I never really knew how much, how much people had mistrust about the government. And you found that in the survey results as well, I assume, yes? Yeah, I did. Are there people in your life who are still hesitant? Yeah, there are a couple of my friends and then also a little bit of my family members. How do you deal with that? Do you try to convince them? And if so, how do you bring them around? So first, I let them know that their feelings and thoughts are valid. Because I feel like if you immediately say, oh, that's wrong, the person won't want to have a conversation with you because if you're not understanding them, how do you expect them to understand you? So first step, making sure that their feelings are valid. And then second step, Along with the articles, I do it with them. Like, I'm saying, oh, I'm learning with you, so let's learn together. Let's go on this website and let's watch these videos together and get an idea and talk about it. I feel like if you're learning with them and you're showing them that I'm willing to understand your side, if you're willing to understand mine, then I feel like that kind of helps the conversation, so. Do you have anybody that you've convinced? Yeah, I do. One of my close friends. Because like she was, she was expressing all these different concerns, and I'm like, okay, I have an article for that. Um, I have an article for this. So I felt really confident about that because I'm just like, okay, great. Because I feel like the worst part is when people have concerns, and then you don't know what to say. Like You're just like, I don't really know how to address your concern. You know, I don't have an answer for you. But luckily, like the concerns that she had were some that were really common. So I was able to find articles on those and send it to her. If I had to put you on the spot and be like, there are people listening to this. What's your pitch to them if they're a little bit hesitant about the vaccine? Do you have like a 30-second pitch? I can think of one. Okay, so I feel like 
we've all been saying when things go back to normal, we want things to go back to normal. And at first that just sounded like a saying, like we're just saying it. But I feel like with this vaccine, that can turn into a reality. Things can actually go back to normal if everybody just takes a leap of faith and just takes this vaccine. Things can finally go back to normal. Like that imagination can turn into a reality. What are you most looking forward to doing once things go back to normal? Hanging out with my friends, hanging out with groups again. And I'm also going to college. So I I want the college experience, you know, just getting to meet different people. I'm really, really excited about that. So yeah, fingers crossed that that happens soon. That was Justine Sakodia. She's a senior at the High School for Health Professions and Human Services. From the Mount Sinai Health System, this is Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. Today on the podcast, Vaccine Hesitancy. Why? On a podcast about resilience. Well, resilience is about bouncing back from adversity. And if we're going to bounce back from COVID-19, we need to use what my next guest calls the best tool in our toolkit. Dr. Yvette Calderon understands the science as well as anybody. She leads the emergency department at Mount Sinai Beth Israel, but she also understands hesitancy at its roots. And she has advice for how to meet it with compassion, enthusiasm, and science. Dr. Calderon, welcome to Order Resilience. Thanks for having me. Tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up in New York, in Manhattan. Um, I started out in the Chelsea Projects way back when. And then in my teenage years, my family moved up to House Kitchen. So I've been in, I've been a Manhattan girl for a long time. And how would you describe the community in which you grew up? Uh, a very poor um, community. My mother and father came from Puerto Rico. They were born and raised there. And uh, my father came from an um, area in Puerto Rico called Bajaldo. Um, and my mom came from San Pulce. You know, pretty humble background. How did growing up in that community sensitize you to some of the issues faced by underserved communities when it comes to healthcare? I mean, whenever I interacted with the healthcare system with my parents, I would see how we were treated differently. What did you notice? I noticed that I, we were basically um, kept waiting for a very long time. I, I, I remember this distinctly because my father had horrible back pain. He worked in a factory and Part of his job it was textile it was carrying heavy heavy stuff and i remember this one time uh, my mom and i took him to the emergency department and we waited and i you know saw him in pain for such a long time and couldn't understand until finally my mom you know had to say something because my father was actually crying in pain and i thought to myself that's not how you know that's not how this works right like when i see it on television people run over to you and help you and and so that was one of the first times that I really understood that, that perhaps the care that we were receiving was slightly different from the others that were in the emergency department at that point in time. I read something that you said in an interview that I really love. You said that one of the reasons you went into emergency medicine is because it's the front door to the community. Can you expand on that thought a little bit? Emergency medicine is like no other place in, in medicine. We are really the first part of healthcare that you will see when you need healthcare the most. And so to me, that's the most important place to be right now um, and was when I was in medical school. I loved a lot of parts of medicine, but knowing that I could be there at the moment where a patient is most vulnerable, to me, that's an honor, an honor to be there for that patient and to, to help them and, and 
so yeah, it, we are the closest to the community. Do I have it correct that you did, um, you've done work related to HIV AIDS? Is that right? Yeah, a ton. Yeah. I mean, since we're going to be talking about disparities in health, um, I think HIV AIDS show those disparities very clearly. These are not new. Um, and I was wondering if you, whether working on HIV AIDS kind of helped to sharpen your understanding of who gets what in the healthcare system and who gets left out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I must have been with in my first 10 years of being an attending, and I decided actually to go back to get my master's in clinical research because I wanted to be able to build programs and interventions that could help the patient population we were taking care of in the Bronx at that time, help them identify HIV faster. So I went back to school and I had a fabulous uh, partner who was, uh, ran the HIV clinic over at Jacoby. And we just started to build programs and show the success of the programs, bring in those patients much earlier, keep them healthy, keep them safe. And so I firmly believe that you need to speak to the community. You need to ask them, what are your needs? And not presume to know their needs. How have those lessons played out during COVID? How have they affected the way that you're working during this time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think more than anything, what struck me during COVID was how fast patients, they would really decompensate within the emergency department. And at the time, we had a policy of you know, patients would have to come in without their loved ones. So you didn't have a visitor, right? And that was done to protect the patient, the staff, as well as the family members. Um, but that was probably the hardest decision. And when I recognized that my parents both had COVID and that I couldn't get to my father and I couldn't care for him, then it became so personal. You can, you can sometimes see things and, and it really has an impact on you. But when you have to actually go through that journey, that journey is incredibly painful. And that is why I want everyone to get vaccinated. No one should have to go through that, really. And if you don't have to, then then just, you know, get vaccinated. Do the right thing. You know, make sure that, that you can be with your family. As we know, that message has been resonating to varying degrees. How have you seen that message be received in different ways? You know, when I see some of the staff say, no, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I, I try very hard to go and find them every day, every other day, and just go, hey, good news? Any good news yet? <laughs> Have you taken the vaccine yet? Um, I'm here to answer your questions. And I think the first thing I have to say is, I get it. I get the mistrust, totally. I mean, I grew up hearing about my great aunts, you know, in Puerto Rico during a time where they were sterilizing women and not telling them. And, and if you look at history, that happened in Mississippi. It's not just Tuskegee. And so people have to understand that that, that hesitation is because medicine has not always been the best place to go to. And so I start from there. I get it. You know, I start from that point of view. And then I make my arguments as to why it's different now and what makes it different. What makes it different? The science. It's understanding the science. It's the transparency of the science. 
I don't think that we do such a great job sometimes conveying that, right? We, we think we're, we're doing a great job, but we don't. And I think it's important to be able to dissect things apart. Like when I hear from, you know, family, friends, well, you know, the vaccine rolled out so quickly. I mean, is it safe? I don't think it's safe. It can't be safe, right? How could it be safe? It takes two years to, you know, create a vaccine. And then you have to go back and go, wait, first of all, it is safe. And yes, it came out quickly. And you should be going hooray because that means we have made such strides. We have come so far to be able to create a vaccine that works and that works in an extraordinary way, right? And then you have to understand that this is not a new technology. mRNA is not a new technology. It's been studied for decades. So it's not new. It's been used with Ebola. It's been used with Zika, people have studied this technology. And, and if you look at the trials and you read the articles, and this is what I say to my nurses, and honestly, I did. And that's why I felt very comfortable. You know, I, I, I keep up on, on the science um, because it's emerging. And that's the part that is so hard for people. If I come and tell you today one thing and then tomorrow it changes, it's hard to believe that the science, this, is this really the science? But when you're in medicine, you know that that is how it goes, right? Um, and COVID was like, one minute we were doing this, the next minute we were doing that. I mean, it was rolling so quickly and every day we got new information. And so we had to tweak our policies and how we were doing things and even how we were taking care of patients. But that evolved and that evolved quickly. So for me, I tell people, this is like, that moment where you should be extremely proud of medicine and science and where we've gotten to. What was it like for you? I'm assuming you've been vaccinated. What was it like for you to get that shot? I can tell you this, and um, I, I laugh at it now, right? And I they, the first list came out of the department, right? They randomized the list. And when I was told that I was on the list, I ran. I didn't walk. I ran upstairs. I'm like, I want to put my name. Now I'm on that list and I want my, you know, vaccine. And they all started laughing because I was the first one there that went up. <laughs> Everyone was, you know, taking their time. And I was just like, no, I want my vaccine. So maybe I'm a little crazy, but. Why were you the first one up there? Uh, well, it was clear. I saw my father. Well, I didn't see him pass away, but he left abruptly. And I have a daughter and I have a dog. So you know what? They need me. And there's just no way I want this, this disease. There's just no way. Um, you know, I have a brother, sister-in-law, a niece. I mean, my, fam I, my family, my friends, they mean so the world to me. You know, I have a lot of life to go. I need to get this vaccine, right? I've, but, but the real truth is when you see so much death, and you understand the science and you understand the medicine, it was so easy for me to say, I'll be the first one taking that shot. You know, I did not have any hesitance about it. I heard you say in an interview in September, so before the vaccines, that you hoped that the communities that had been hardest hit would be the first vaccinated. How would you rate our performance as a society on that metric? It's complicated because that's the same community that, you know, has the hesitancy of vaccination. And so that's why it's so important to go and talk to the community, get them ready, 
for when they are eligible to get the vaccine, they go and they get it. I think that's the part we left out. We just assumed, you know, everyone was going to get the vaccine. You know, when they became eligible, they were all going to go and get the vaccine. And I think the hesitancy piece was something that a lot of the physicians and certainly, you know, the scientists did not expect and the public health world did not expect. And that's why now I continually go out there and, you know, whenever someone asks me to go and do a talk or answer questions, it's it's more than my pleasure. I feel it's kind of like my duty to go out there and do that. Do you have a 30-second pitch? Well, no, I, 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 I go, okay, so tell me, what's the question, right? You have to have questions, and I can answer them for you. And then when they shrug their shoulders, I go, look, I took it. I don't have two heads. <laughs> no. Uh, no, seriously, I mean, you know, it went it, it went as I expected, and, and I am extremely happy that I took my vaccine and, and that I'm protected. And um, recently... My niece called me, she's, she's pregnant, and we had this conversation because she was hearing a, a hesitancy and, you know, social media and, and a lot of people saying negative things. And, you know, we had a great conversation. And then, you know, I led her to, um, there's a great talk by one of the scientists, physician scientists that actually reviewed all of the data for the Pfizer vaccine. And I, you know, I sent that to her so she could hear it. And, you know, it, and they talked about being pregnant and having the vaccine and the science behind it. And what was really clear to her was, if I don't take this vaccine and I get COVID, now that I'm in my second trimester, soon to be in the third trimester, if I get COVID, my baby's going to suffer. And that's all she needed to hear. That made the difference, right? But you have to hear the science, have to hear how others had gone through things that you don't want to go through. And I also say this, listen, I have never seen a trial, a, a, a actual research study looking at these vaccines so quickly enrolled. I mean, these people enrolled 40,000 for Pfizer, 30,000 plus for Moderna. That just doesn't happen. So you know what I know? People were putting their lives out there and going, I want to be a part of the solution. And for me not to be a part of the solution, I feel is, you know, that can't be. We all should be part of the solution. Since this is Road to Resilience, we're talking about resilience. And I think we've been referring to it in many different ways throughout this conversation. And I'm wondering if you could just connect the idea of resilience, bouncing back as individuals, as a community, to vaccination. Yeah. Um, if you ask me what one word really exemplified, you know, last year, 2020, throughout the whole pandemic, it was resilience. I saw it in my staff. I saw it in my family. I saw it in myself. And so that resilience can carry you through. And, and it's based on your faith for some people, right? Your community or your family for others. Whatever that is, you know, you have to put it together to go forward. And because we're seeing, you know, so much positive stuff right now, I think that just, you know, reinforces the fact that this strength that has gotten us through will get us through to the end. That's how I look at it. And vaccination is a part of well, that. Vaccination is the part, the biggest part of the toolkit, right? I mean, when we talk about how do you keep yourself safe, the first thing on the list is when you're eligible and you can get a vaccine, get the vaccine. Do what Dr. Calderon did. Run upstairs, 
sign up for it and just get it. All right. You, I promise you, you will feel better about it. Fantastic. I think that's a great note to end on. Dr. Calderon, thank you so much for coming Thanks on to the podcast. Me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Justine and Dr. Calderon, for coming on the podcast. And a big thank you also to Dr. Ugo Ezenquail, Dina Jacobson, Dr. Bruce Levinson, and Donna LaPiccolo for their help with this episode. We want to know what you think about the podcast and what topics you'd like us to cover. If you've got five minutes, please take our listener survey at www.mountsinai.org slash RTR survey. There's also a link in the show notes, which is probably easier to use. But again, that URL, www.mountsinai.org slash RTR survey. Thank you. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's produced by Nikki Cheatham, me, John Earl, and Lucia Lee. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.